strategically, attribution is not just a question of, hey, can I take action based on this data? It's what is the holistic value of the actions that we're taking? And that's the hard question to answer that, you know, I don't see attribution software solving at an executive level anyway. You're listening to Go to Market Excellence, the show for strategic leaders in B2B who understand the importance of data in accelerating growth. We dissect the innovative tools and data-driven strategies that give forward-thinking leaders an edge in everything from RevOps to customer acquisition. Let's get started. We are back with another episode of Go-To-Market Excellence. It's my pleasure to welcome Ryan Iyengar to the show today. Ryan is Chief Revenue Officer at Helium 10, which creates software tools for Amazon sellers and entrepreneurs. Previously, Ryan was CMO at Health IQ and a VP of Marketing at ZipRecruiter, among other jobs. And so, Ryan, it's our pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Excited to talk about it. Absolutely. Let's jump right into it. So, you're not a fan of the obsession that marketing people have with multi-touch attribution. And I'd love to hear more. So how have your views on this evolved as your career has has your career has evolved from VP of marketing to CMO to now being CRO over both sales and marketing at uh, Helium 10? Sure. So I got my start in, in digital marketing, specifically search advertising. And obviously that you, you sort of get data overload there. There's as much as, as you want. And over time, I started to realize that trying to apply this more broadly, it had, it had a lot of issues around essentially false precision. If all you're doing is channel management, it's actually great. There's a lot of great tools for managing your channels really effectively. But it is almost my career progression itself that has shaped my views on this topic, which is the more you step into senior roles, the more you need to blend across multiple channels, across multiple efforts in a business. And the closer you get to sort of a CEO level role, you realize everything affects everything. Like there's no real way to purely isolate activities like you can in, in a channel manager role. And so that's kind of how I've evolved to where I am today. I, starting from digital marketing, you know, I was actually all about tight level attribution and making sure I had all the data I needed to make my decisions. And as I grew through the marketing realm and, and now responsible for sales, I recognized there's a lot of art and science in the way that you blend these efforts together. And it's not always truly about getting maximum precision. It's sometimes about just getting to a decision, you need enough information. You know, I think Bezos sort of famously quoted it, making a decision with 70% of the information you wish you had. I live by that as well. And I think a lot of folks spend a lot of time with attribution, chasing 99% precision and really 70 is good enough. I'm sure he was shooting for more than 70% though when he went up to space last week. Sure. There's certain areas where uh, you want a little little less margin for error. You're Sounds like you're saying that from an executive point of view, that having precise channel attribution isn't as important as you once thought it was when you were like a channel manager, demand gen manager. Do you still feel like like for that person in that role, it's still critical for them to be able to track and attribute all their investments to leads, deals, et cetera? Absolutely. Just, you know, it's sort of my personal perspective that at a corporate level, it's hard to use solutions like this to set strategy and to set kind of levels of investment. And, you know, I, I haven't found the silver bullet that will create more data where there is none. You can have lots of tools that manage the data that you already have. And as a channel manager, absolutely. I, I talk with all of my digital teams and marketing teams about getting as, as wide a touch as we can and making sure all of our touch points are tracked. And we use that for implementation. So we use it to trigger emails, to trigger new audience segments when we're targeting new uh, marketing campaigns. 
So it's it's still very valuable tactically to have that type of information. But strategically, attribution is not just a question of, hey, can I take action based on this data? It's what is the holistic value of the actions that we're taking? And that's the hard question to answer that, you know, I don't see attribution software solving at an executive level anyway. Yeah. So back to multi-touch thing, though, so many people are so, I would say, yeah, obsessed and overly committed to figuring out all the different touches that brought somebody from web visitor to ultimately a new customer. Where do you think people go wrong when you over-obsess on this kind of thing, like multi-touch? Where does it mislead you? What does it mislead you to do? Like maybe you have your own experiences from that. Maybe you've seen other people get it wrong and really mislead themselves and others. Sure. So I, I picked up a, another quote from um, Stephen Sanofsky, who used to work at Microsoft. He wrote a lot of blogs about managing Windows and, and at Microsoft. And he, he coined this term, or I think he coined it at least, that's where I picked it up, was synthetic PL. And that a synthetic PL is sort of always a nightmare to manage. And I see multi-touch attribution as kind of like a synthetic PL, which is to say, you know, no customer is managing their purchase behavior this way. That no customer is you know, describing line items on their invoice of, oh, I want to give 10% to Chuck, my sales rep, and 20% to that, you know, ad I saw, they're buying the product or they're not. That's sort of a binary outcome. And so everything from that point internally to split up that credit either amongst channels or amongst teams or amongst marketing versus sales even, you're essentially setting a new battleground for internal debate. And it's tough to settle internal debates. It requires hours of meetings and negotiations. And that's where I see people go wrong. It's not to say that you shouldn't coordinate between multiple teams and set some guide guide rails and rules of engagement and things like that. Those are extremely valuable. But a multi-touch model is one that is only as good as the people that set up the model. And so oftentimes, the arbiters of those kinds of debates are finance teams, operations teams, analytics teams. They're sort of not practitioner teams because practitioners are somewhat self-interested. And so you don't want your players refing the game, but your refs are not necessarily experts either, right? So they sort of see an output and the output seems reasonable. And so they go with it, but that's not the same thing as actually reflecting reality. And so where I think people go wrong is, is not that they spend any time trying to figure out a good attribution regime. Absolutely. Every business needs a good attribution regime. I just don't think it's worth hours and hours and months and months and frankly, even years at, at certain companies. I've heard horror stories of people just depends on the VP of sales comes in and, and kind of changes things around. And then a new VP of marketing comes in, sales leaves. And all of a sudden, we're re- all we're doing is reshuffling deck chairs. But it, it makes you lose sight of actually talking to your customers and, and growing your business if you're too focused on kind of the scorecard, so to speak. Yeah, you mentioned a minute ago that uh, customers don't buy, you know, I want to attribute 10% to the Google ad and and 5% to the salesperson, etc. They don't buy that way. But finance teams also don't build plans that way either. They don't build plans with multi-touch attribution involved. If they do build, if they are granular enough, it's just with like channel in mind, you know, we invest in X amount of dollars per month in Google ads or X amount in our SDR team. So yeah, it doesn't match up really to the way that you make plans. It doesn't match up to the way customers buy. So for those reasons, we're out. I mean, in, in general, right? Like obviously, you know, when I talk to my finance teams at any of the companies I've worked at, we both have the same questions, right? We're both trying to answer where should we put our next dollar? Should we hire another SDR? Should we invest more in display ads? Like those are hard questions to answer. And I strive to answer them in conjunction with finance teams as well as the operational and, and kind of discipline teams. 
But I find the best ways to answer those, if you can, is through experimentation rather than attribution. I see those as two different approaches. Experimentation says, well, how many SDRs can we hire before we are like clearly broken, right? Like if we're starting from zero, we can pretty clearly hire, you know, maybe one or two and, and see what happens. If we're starting from 20, maybe we can go to 25 or 30 and, and see what happens. Like experimentation is valuable. And so that's that's where I always kind of land that we can do whatever backwards looking attributional analysis we want, but that has no bearing on future results because our actions impact the world. So when we hire that next SDR, when we make that next dollar investment, the world shifts under our feet and, and reacts to it. There's sort of a conservation of, of energy here and momentum. So you have to eventually run some tests and that that will tell you, right? Like if this year you only had a staff of 20 and by next year you're aiming to get to 30, no amount of, of attribution methodology will tell you if that's the right idea. Only getting to 30 will tell you if that's the right idea. And when you're at 30, are you still profitable? Are sales coming in at the rates that you thought they would? We'll have to see is essentially the answer. But either either way, whether you're talking about attribution or you're talking about experimentation, you still have to have some kind of data infrastructure to put in place to be able to answer that question that you just said. What's the most effective place to put my next dollar to drive growth? So I'm curious, at Helium, what's da- what data infrastructure have you guys put in place to be able to make those decisions, whether you're talking about attribution, where to put the next dollar where in certain channels, or whether about experimentations, and then you run the experiment, you have to monitor the performance of that experiment. It takes the infrastructure modeling processes, et cetera. So what have you guys put in place at Helium 10 that maybe other people could learn from? Yeah, absolutely. I am very uh, happy with our level of instrumentation and, and data tracking. That said, we are we have a little bit of an advantage. We're a product-led company and SaaS company. So Helium 10, as you mentioned, provides services to Amazon sellers. And those services are all involved on our website. That's That's the main thing that our software operates on. You're running queries against our database, you're using our tools to to help maximize your Amazon listings. And so every action that customers take is tracked sort of by default. And I think service-led businesses or or more sales-led businesses, enterprise B2B, it's a little harder. Not every interaction you have with a customer is on a website um, and can be instrumented in such a way. And so, you know, I, I take for granted that we are in an advantageous position to be able to do that completely. However, you know, we've been big fans of, of Segment and Amplitude and Tableau and a couple of BI tools like that. It's really about just, I find tools are useful, but it's more about, you know, people and processes around those. Because there are, even though we are pretty well instrumented, there are gaps, you know, sometimes clients send us emails, sometimes we hop on the phone, sometimes, you know, there is a process that doesn't happen entirely on our website. And so we need to generate some tracking around that. We use Salesforce, obviously, as a CRM. And so that that's very important. Google Analytics, you know, all of our revenue goes through Stripe. So there's there's a lot of tools and, and services that we use and vendors. But yeah, I think what, what happens is we're a B2B company, but we service so many of them and we're so product-led that we're able to build a tracking and infrastructural instrumentation piece a lot like a D2C company or a B2C company. And I think what a lot of enterprise companies get trapped up in is trying to instrument themselves as if they are also kind of so product focused and and consumer focused when in reality a lot of where their rubber hits the road is is off their website is in a you know phone call and and that's where tools like gong and stuff you know are, are pretty exciting i've been tracking a lot of that stuff but you know that's a different approach for sure you talk about the product led business model you guys have so you take if some most people pay online to get access to your to helium 10 
they don't pay online, do you guys capture leads a different way? Or is it just you either sign up or you don't sign up? Yeah, I mean, it's it's majority self-service. We have a handful of other funnels that we can we can sign up people more manually and through a sales call and agencies and enterprises and larger brands might want to talk to someone before just buying our self-service product. So we have some methods for that. But largely when I'm talking about attribution and, and instrumentation, we're talking about the, the large numbers here, not the small numbers. Yeah. What do you guys use for marketing automation? Braze, actually. Okay. So Braze obviously integrates with Salesforce and then Segment helps bring in the product data. Is that correct? From your platform into Salesforce? Yep. I mean, everything sits on top of Segment. Segment is a clearinghouse of all of our data. Gotcha. Very cool. And and then how does Tableau interact with Segment? Tableau just sits on top of, of the warehouses that are dumped into. So we can sort of arbitrarily put whatever visualization we want there. We also use Amplitude for a couple of those types of visualization tasks, which has been pretty helpful. Yes. And so you're using, so you want to go and you want to answer questions about what's going on and go to market. You sign into Tableau and that's where you find answers about all the data that you need to make your decisions. I think it's a mix. To my earlier point, when you put on your channel manager hat and you want to dive into a channel and see how that's performing, sure, you can dive into one of those tools. So I might dive into Google Analytics. You know, I might dive into Amplitude, Tableau dashboards for other certain products, Salesforce for sales reports. But none of those tools does the, you know, full multi-touch view. And that's where, you know, I think a lot of these things break down. They all have connectors, right? They all can theoretically talk to each other. But when it comes to the art part of mixing all those together, you know, sales says we closed X dollars in revenue. I go over to marketing. We have this much, you know, firing from our Facebook pixel. We have this much closed through Stripe. Like all of these numbers are close to each other, but... You know, one of the things that might happen is if you add up all the individual channels, you might realize, well, every channel sort of took credit for quite a bit of revenue. And uh, we don't actually have, you know, double counted revenue. We only have $1 of revenue. So you have to, that's where the attribution piece comes in. So I'd say it sort of depends on my task. If it's diving into a channel and making sure it's optimized, sure, I'll dive into that channel's sort of interface, whether it be, you know, a login to Facebook, you know, business manager or, or Google AdWords or Salesforce. But when I want to make business decisions, like planning decisions, that's when you go talk to finance and, you know, nothing really beats Google Sheets. This is what I found. And with a product-led model, what are the major metrics, uh, conversion metrics that you're looking at on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis? You know, you guys, I know you said previously to me, you guys mainly turn are trying to turn free uh, trials into paid customers or paid to upgrade. And so, yeah, what are you looking at? Yeah, so that's that's what we track is every every step of that funnel from free user signups to we have a Chrome extension, track Chrome extension installs, usages of, of both of those things, which are kind of freemium services. And then absolutely the, the main interaction point is when you start your subscription with us. So we track funnel conversion from all the various ways you can start that. We have a couple upgrade points. And then most importantly, in a product-led company, I think is retention because we don't have, you know, for the, the many customers that we have to chase down, we're not going to have a conversation with all of them. We're not going to be able to save all of them. And so retention is one of those things that is an extremely powerful lever. And that's what being product-led means. Are your tools, is your software actually retaining people in their workflows? Are they getting value? So in our case, are people actually improving their Amazon businesses? Are they logging back in to check their P&Ls in our profits tool? Are they doing another keyword search in our Cerebro product database? If so, then we're doing something right. And that has multiplicative power. 
You mentioned something about Gong a couple minutes ago, and it reminded me of something I totally forgot to ask you, and that is about you have this view of attribution that like forget all the tools. There's the, there's one awesome way to do attribution and figure out where customers are coming from and how they're hearing about you and all that. And some people use Gong for that. Other people just call, talk to people directly. Tell me about the best way of doing attribution in your mind. It's not even like a one one way to rule them all. I just think it's sort of underutilized, or I've, I found it underutilized in in marketing, B two B marketing especially, seems to be more popular these days. Which is just asking your customers, surveying them essentially. So you could do it on a sales call and try to aggregate that with sales tracking and, and voice tracking, like you know tools like Gong do, or you can just send an email. Like you can plug it into your post purchase signup flow. You can just put it in your if you run a website, you can have a little pop-up on your website that says, hey, by the way, you know, where, where have you heard about us recently? And so there's a lot of ways to address this, but I particularly like it for two reasons. One, it is actually fairly consistent, more than you might imagine. If you ask it in a consistent way over time, you'll be surprised at how often it reflects exactly your marketing mix back to you and your sales mix back to you. And two, I think it highlights extremely well the false precision of other attribution methodologies, which is you can ask your customers, hey, where did you hear about us? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I think I saw like a a TV ad or something. And you don't run TV. Like you've never run a TV ad in your life. And so you you immediately are struck in the face with this idea that attribution is messy. Like customers don't even remember. They don't, you know, keep track of this stuff and they just form impressions. It's, It's a softer way of understanding immediately, like there's error here. And you can accept that error, and hopefully it's a low error. I would anticipate if you haven't run TV ads, it's going to be less than 1% of your customers that will say they've heard of you on a TV ad. But when you then start running TV ads, and all of a sudden 20% of your customers are saying that, even though no one's going to your TV landing page, well, that might tell you something that that's actually having a, a sizable impact on your customers' perceptions of you. And I think you know a lot of marketers, especially digital marketers, get lost in the idea that everything is trackable these days, even on TV. There's a lot of vendors that claim to be able to do IP tracking and set-top device tracking and all this cool stuff. And look, tech is way better than it was, you know, 10 years ago or 50 years ago, but it's still not perfect. Like all these things are extremely prone to error and fuzziness. So yeah. How do you guys do it after somebody signs up or signs for a free trial or what, like what's the trigger? Yeah, we run a survey via, I think it's an email follow-up survey. And so that seems like a reasonable way to do it if you're a product led. And do you guys give drop downs or do you just have an open text field and, and then you rationalize it after? Drop down is super important. You don't want an open text field. <laughs> People just type random stuff in an open text field. Yeah. So if you're not product led, let's say you um, try to cut your sales led and you just capture leads on your website and you pass them over to sales. Certainly the you know conversion rate optimizer would not want to add an extra field to the uh, form, right? But it could be, it could be, I was going to say my, my experience has not been that adding a, how do you hear about us drop down at the end of your lead form really impacts conversion rate all that much. Oh, you've run, you've run that. Oh, of course. Yeah. We've made it required. We've made it optional. We've added it, you know, removed it. And when you run those kinds of tests, you'll see maybe slight variations, but I've never seen a consistent drop. This is a, another interesting thing that obviously it's company by company, case by case, but generally speaking, less form fields leads to higher completion rates. But you have to think about the trade-off there. And like, it's not really specifically true at the margin. You know, in general, 50 fields on one page versus two, sure. But 15 versus 16, it's not really that big of a difference. 
Well, you also, I mean, when you really start cutting down fields, you start running into issues with uh, lead quality too. And then you're taking, taking time away from salespeople if, that's, uh, if sales are part of your motion. What's the point of collecting a lead if they don't actually want to buy your product, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You started going to the whole experimentation thing when you talked about the form. So you guys, because you're B2B, but you do a lot of things like a B2B2C or straight B2C company, how do you apply kind of the testing experimentation mindset that a lot of B2C companies have? How are you able to apply it in uh, Helium 10's model? Sure. And, and it's uh, you know, similar to what I was doing at Health IQ, which is a consumer-facing model, and, and at ZipRecruiter, which happened to be both, basically. We had both a job seeker-facing and employer-facing. So at Helium 10, we, we apply many of those same methodologies. But the core of it, and this is where I think a lot of enterprise and B2B marketers and, and sales folks fall down, and it's not, not their fault, is just make sure you're, you have sample size. Experiments are not worth anything, really, if you have no sample size. And I have a particular bone to pick with all the pseudo-statisticians out there who sort of use the wield the p-value as a stick and say, hey, well, you know, my p-value says it worked, so it worked. That's not exactly how statistics works. You can't sort of, there's a thing called p-hacking, which is essentially you can keep running an experiment until you get a really good, you know, favorable p-value and then say, great, it worked. When in reality, you just ran a bunch of experiments and like p-value of less than 0.05 means well, yeah, you just ran 20 experiments and one of those 20 happened to work because that's what that means. And so you, you have to stay very, very sensitive to the idea that you can't, if, you ha- if your business is running on very low data, experimentation is not actually that great of a solve. And so you have to focus your experimentation on areas where you do have enough data to be able to figure out what's going on. So if you're getting two leads a day through a, a funnel, like, yeah, adding or removing a field, you'll, you won't be able to tell, basically. Maybe you'll get more. You'll sort of squint at these low numbers and think, I, I don't know, well, we got three today, so maybe it worked. It's like, no, it, that's not how statistics works. But if you're getting, you know, hundreds of leads through a particular funnel, like, sure, there's no sort of hard and fast rule here. Like, the, the more data you collect, the better your sample size. Obviously, lots of, you know, blogs and other folks out there will tell you you need 30 or 100 or 5,000 or whatever. It's... The reality is, how big of an effect do you want to measure? That's what it comes down to. And I think when most people want to run experiments, they don't actually want to run experiments that measure very small effects. Great businesses are not built on the back of 1% effects. They're built on the back of 50% effects. And, you know, what people would commonly call like low-hanging fruit, right? Should we have this form at all? Should we have this team at all? Should we you know, how many steps should it be? What should our product even be? Like, should we be freemium or opt-out trial or opt-in trial? They're sort of big things, big swings. I haven't even talked about it. What's the price? Like, that's that's one of the biggest levers you can move, right? And you don't really want to futz around on the, the edges of some of these things. You want to be able to run decent-sized experiments. And so it requires a lot of conviction to run a big experiment like that, but also some instrumentation. So there's a couple things that, that you could do. The, the two big ones that I've seen that work in the consumer space that also tend to work a little bit in the B2B space is one, holdout groups. So just if you want to take an action, don't do that action for a group. So if you're wondering what's the effect of of adding a couple extra form fields on a lead form, don't do it for 5% and see what happens. That's sort of a classic website A-B test. But it also works for, you know, let's say sales teams. We want to see what SDRs are able to to pull from this, this lead list versus, you know, just emailing, let's say with no phone follow-up, well, let's not apply SDRs to half the lead list and, and see what happens. It's, I know it's sort of dead simple, and I'm, I'm not trying to trivialize it, but that's, 
that's the only thing that really works. And I've tried that with, you know, you get these account-based marketing, which is more of an enterprise idea. You guys may not, you know, follow that, but you get a big list of accounts and you can basically break them in half and half of them, you run those account-based ads to half of them you don't. And you can just see that way as doing a holdout group, just like you're talking about whether or not, you know, the account, you know, they call them air cover ads, whether that is even working or not and helping your SDRs have a better chance of uh, setting meetings. And in some cases, it might not. And that's like a, it's a tough pill to swallow, right? Especially as a marketer. And that's why you don't want to, you know, to walk that down the path. If at the CRO level or CEO level or or someone is saying, hey, I want to run account-based marketing, but I want to validate it. I want to see that it's actually worth its investment. And, you know, you you put a multi-touch sort of thing in place and all you do is validate. Well, they saw the ad, they got an impression. And sometimes you have uh, methods that, that count the impression, sort of view through methods, maybe they clicked on the ad. And so we count that click through impression. But at the end of the day, what matters is what if we hadn't shown the ad? What if there was just a, a holdout there? And when you run that test, and let's say you don't see an incremental lift, just to be clear here, I'm not a stickler, you still can decide to run the ad. Like not every decision you make has to be like a game changing, you know, 10x ROI thing. You can still decide it's good strategy to have an ad, even if it doesn't have incremental result. But I I have particular distaste for holding yourself to the standard of like, I want to show incremental ROI, but then using a method that doesn't actually show incremental ROI. And so it's, I know it's kind of counterintuitive, but I like using a method that, that will show me, let's say on account-based marketing, that the lead list that I showed air cover ads to did not actually convert meaningfully higher. But I might look at that and say, eh, I still want to make that investment. Still feels good to me. But I'm glad we know that like, you know, this is this is sort of in the rank order of things. I know where the ROI is. I can still choose to invest in things that are lower or higher ROI. It's just nice to know what they are. Yeah. And you could also take the approach of it's a small incremental lift. Let's say 5% incremental lift here. And then we're going to adjust our price. So we get 10, 10% incremental lift in uh, close rate or something like that. And maybe a couple other things. Next thing you know, you got 30% combined lift in, in performance. So, and and now you're getting close to a real game-changing, business-altering group of decisions there. Yeah, no, for sure. You can stack some stuff like that. You know, going back, if you jog your memory back to things in your career, where have you kind of gotten this wrong, made some mistakes, if you, if you have any that come to mind, or, or maybe some really uh, killer outcomes when you've run a holdout group experiments? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk through maybe one of both. So, in the past, one of the things that I think we did that was really, really powerful at, at ZipRecruiter when I was helping run marketing there was some of this kind of survey-based B2B attribution that enabled us to run traditional advertising. And so not a lot of B2B companies are able to afford that type of investment in television ads, radio ads, podcast ads, and, and ZipRecruiter was able to do a lot of that. And it really came down to a lot of what I just talked about in terms of making sure that the investments that you're making are are incremental, but at a at a global level, not just on a purely touch-based level or sort of attribution-based method. So like I mentioned earlier, what I thought we did really right was we ran a bunch of TV ads. We didn't actually see meaningful visits to those you know, URLs that we showed on the TV, but we ran it on a market-based level. So we sort of ran some in, let's say, you know, Los Angeles and New York and didn't run it in San Francisco or what have you. And you can see incremental signups that way. And then even more than that, you could see what happened when we turned off the ads too. When you turn them on, you get a, where did all these new customers come from? 
you turn it back off, wait, where did all those customers go? And that's you know a, a version of running a macro holdout test. And so I thought we did that really, really well. And it this is not like a hour by hour, you know, day by day thing. Like this is this took years, like quarters and years of, of experimentation to figure out. But at the end of the day, it was profitable and we were able to scale to a really massive company as uh, the recruiter just went public not too long ago. And you know, a lot of this data is now in the in the S1. You can go read it. So one thing we did, I think, more poorly here, and I, I've seen done more poorly in, in my recent experience, is trying to do that difference between sales and marketing. So I was talking about, you know, hey, if you want to hire an SDR, let's let's try hiring one and, and see what happens. This, I think, is one area where you can take my words too far and say like, well, let's just try not having salespeople at all, right? And like, let's do a, a macro holdout group and decide like our product, you know, or our, our sales team, or let's not have a marketing team at all, right? Like on either side, you can kind of take it too far. And like, I don't actually believe that. And I, I think I've, you know, my stated philosophy here has led me down a little too far some of these rabbit holes of like trying to prove incrementality on too many things. And so I've, I've metered that back a little bit. I've made a couple mistakes on either being too generous or too strict with this methodology, when in reality, it's a mix. And so I think it's taken a couple of years, but I've, I've been very happy recently with the kind of mix of investments that we have. We have fairly good certainty on what the, the return profile of each of those investments is based on a certain amount of experimentation, but we're not running the business by wire, you know, like kind of everyone's constantly on the hook for proving incrementality every day. Like, I think that's culturally, it's actually a, it's not a, a wonderful experience to live through. With the ZipRecruiter thing, so before you started running TV, radio, billboard, were you doing billboards at all? We actually only did a, a very brief billboard experiment and it was not very effective. Oh yeah. How did you know it wasn't effective? Same way we looked at every other channel, which is we ran some market-based tests. We ran some time over time tests. We, you know, looked at the incrementality on our survey results and it just, we saw results to be clear, like putting up billboards in a market caused more people to sign up in that market. So we could measure, you know, relative to a, running a TV investment of a similar amount. It was just a sort of question of ROI. Like our TV ROI was higher than our billboard ROI. So we invested in TV. And so you just, you were running those ads and when people came and, and signed up, you just asked, where did you hear about us? And they said, TV, uh, radio, podcast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when you ran the ad in specific markets, Probably saw, um, even if you didn't see people going to ziprecruiter.com slash, you know, one, two, three, probably saw more branded search in that area, probably saw higher direct visitors as well, I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. An interesting wrinkle on the ZipRecruiter model is whenever you run advertising towards one end of the business, you kind of get a little bit of lift on the other end, which is to say, if you advertise towards job seekers, you get some employers signing up. And if you advertise towards employers, you get some job seekers signing up. And so there's always kind of that very interesting wrinkle as well that is kind of a unique in a marketplace business model as opposed to most kind of straight up b2b SaaS. you guys running any experiments right now at helium 10 that you could share yeah we we actually just uh we just launched some some traditional advertising ads too so uh, we'll we'll see how those go obviously it's business by business dependent right so just because it works at one business doesn't mean it'll work at another and it has to resonate with the audience the the offer has to be good and and at the end of the day your creative has to be good so we'll, we'll see how that, how that turns out. Where can we see those traditional ads popping up? I'm not sure we're going to share all of that yet, but you, you might see them. You might see them in the future. So you, you obviously have had a, uh, an interesting jump from marketing track, marketing leadership, and CMO, and now 
you're over both sales and marketing. What's the biggest thing that you've learned since uh, taking over the whole thing on the revenue side? You know, I wouldn't say I learned it since taking that that particular jump. It's it's been something of a core philosophy, and I think it's only you know the taking it on formally has cemented this philosophy in my mind, which is they're two pretty different disciplines. So there's there's a lot of things that are similar on quantitative tracking, on kind of the philosophy of incremental ROI. I, I've always thought marketing is sales at scale, basically. You're just doing mostly the same thing. You're building awareness in an audience, creating you know desire, you're uh, qualifying your customer, and then you're sort of creating action, call to actions. These are similar things on the art side. On the quantitative side, a ton of similarities on data modeling and tracking and things like that. But I think what, you know, I, re- I read a article the other day that was uh, very targeted at me, I think it was in Saster. I forget exactly who wrote it, but it was basically, hey, you know, your VP of marketing should not be your next CRO. You know, I actually agree, generally speaking, because the skills involved in being a VP of marketing are not exactly the same skills as being, a, let's say, a VP of sales even or, or even a CRO. And so it's a pretty non-standard jump. And what I think the article was getting at is, you know, CRO in most organizations in a sales-led organization should be a senior salesperson. And I generally agree. I think what's special about Helium 10 and, and some organizations is we're a very marketing-led organization. We're a very product-led organization. So it, it makes sense. Like I'm I'm playing a CRO, but you know, by no means do I think I could step into you know high-powered enterprise sales role at a sales-led company. I think those are different skills. And so I'm self-aware of that. And I think uh, any you know marketing or sales leader should be self-aware of whatever your senior title is, whether it be CMO or CRO or CSO or something. The title is not as important as what does your company actually need. And so if you're a senior revenue leader, you should be thoughtful about the other parts that drive revenue and what type of company and what type of role and skills your company needs. So at at Helium 10, a lot of marketing experience is very helpful. And so it's been helpful to have that kind of background for me. And so I'm always thoughtful moving to other roles. I'm not I haven't transformed magically by changing the letters on my resume, right? I still know the things I know. I have strengths where I have strengths. And so it's been important to me to build plenty of other sales and CS talent around me and in the organization. I'm, you know, clearly I'm just one person. It's a team effort. We need people of really high skilled people in, in all of those functions. So you have a sales director that port- reports to you? Yeah, I do. Gotcha. Okay. And did you have to skill up in any particular area or do some extra self-education around the sales side of things in order to just be able to talk the talk with that person, garner their respect and everything like that? Because just because of what you're saying, because most VP of marketing don't jump into the CRO role. Of course. Um, it was it was helpful. We'd, uh, we'd worked together previously at, at ZipRecruiter, actually. So there was a, a little bit of built-in trust and, and understanding of what we were both here to do. Which is I'm I'm not here to micromanage sales and and he's not here to run marketing so we're we're both on the same page there but you know even if we had I had talked to some other cold candidates that I'd not worked with previously and you know I had similar conversations I'm very transparent in that way and I think any any revenue leader has to be fairly transparent about the trade offs here on you know what role does sales play what role does marketing play and you want to talk about attribution because that's important when it comes to let's say setting targets right like what are what am I going to be helped to account to. And who's the ref there? Who's setting those targets? And so it's it's super important to have those conversations early, especially in recruiting. Does RevOps report to you? And generally, what's your opinion? I want a hot take here. Nothing like there's no right or wrong answer, but who should RevOps report to at a, at a tech company? Uh, ops in general is always kind of an interesting one. I think every company that I've ever talked to has it slightly floating in slightly different places. 
when I say ops, I kind of mean generically, which is to say like, yes, there's revenue operations, but that's there's flavors of sales operations, marketing operations. And then even at the core of it, what I would call just generic business operations, right? And so the way I think about it is not at a tech company, you know, RevOps has to report to sales or something like that. The way I think about it is actually more person dependent. Like it depends on who your leaders are. Like I've known sales leaders that are incredibly operationally talented and like absolutely they should be in the weeds on all of the operations that that their teams are running on. I've also known ones that are not, <laughs> that are just really focused on kind of high level partnership and sales strategy and they're not super in the weeds operationally. Meanwhile, your marketing leader is like deep in the weeds. You know, that was one of the things that I, I led at, at ZipRecruiter. I was a marketing leader that also ran analytics for a period of time. And so I see it more person by person. Like operations is one of those roles that you can't really screw it up. You want folks that are focused on the details, focused on all the interconnectedness of various, you know, processes and flows and have the pol- political capital essentially to actually get it done. You don't want them off in a, in a silo on an island. So I, I think it's leader dependent, not t- company dependent or industry dependent. Yeah, I love that answer. I heard a similar answer from Brad Smith, the CEO of Sonar. He was on a couple of episodes ago and uh, he said something similar. He was like, you know, it's all about who, whether the strengths of the leader it might be the CEO and, or, and also at the st- stage of the company, you know, if it's a smaller company, the CEO is operationally minded, then it could be them, it could be the COO. But in general, like if it's RevOps, probably makes sense that they report to the CRO, assuming the CRO is operationally minded. And if they're not, the question is why why are they CRO? Sure. That's a fair that's a fair question. Yeah, I think that's the way I think about most roles though, right? Like should X report to Y is always a question of like, well, who's X and who's Y? Like specifically in this instance. It's not like a you know, we can have theory debate in like the average case, but when you're running a business, you're not running an average case. You're running a business. And it's you know, it's so-and-so and it's so-and-so and they have this history or they don't. And that's that's important stuff. Absolutely. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for stopping by Go to Market Excellence. We've enjoyed having you on the show and we'll stay in touch. But I appreciate all your views on attribution, experimentation, and, you know, the proper structure of uh, an organization. Been super helpful. So uh, thanks for taking the time. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. At Scale Matters, we believe people make better decisions with better information, not blindly following their gut. That's why we started this podcast. And that's why we offer go-to market analytics that provide high-quality data and unbiased insights that strategic B2B revenue leaders can use to make their best decisions. If you want to check it out, go to www.scalematters.com. You've been listening to Go to Market Excellence. If you find what you've just heard valuable, then be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode. Until next time, stay excellent.